Hey, everybody. Welcome to another commission podcast from Bald Move. Uh, this time we are going to be talking about The Station Agent. It is a 2003 movie uh, starring Peter Dinklage and a couple of other people you might recognize. Uh, this one's commissioned by Andrew M. He's uh, commissioned something in the past. I think he's got a couple more coming up and uh, seems to have some pretty good taste in movies. He's I don't the know what thought about this. He is. He's going to have to get the official title of the commissioner, maybe a forum badge or something. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm glad he made me watch this, honestly, because I don't think I ever would have. I never knew this movie without, existed. Yeah. And it's really, really good. Like, there's a couple reasons to watch this movie. Number one, if you've never seen Peter Dinklage in anything besides Elf. And <laughs> or Game of Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones, then you should really you, you should see this because it's really it's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also got Bobby uh, Cannavale, is I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, yeah, who a lot of you might re- like recognize as Jip Rossetti from uh, sure. season three of Boardwalk Empire, I believe. Yeah, I I really like him in this movie. Uh, it has Patricia Clarkson, who's the other of the main trio of of, of characters. She is Tammy One on Parks and Rec. <laughs> she's also the warden's wife from The Green Mile, and she's been in a lot of. She's a like yeah. fairly famous character actor, and also uh, there's a minor role played by Michelle Williams, who um, is mostly famous for being in Shutter Island at Leo. Uh, she played Marilyn Monroe in uh, My Week with Marilyn, which came out in 2011. Also, she has recurring. Uh, role in Dawson's Creek. Yeah, she reminds me a lot of Brittany Murphy. Really? Yeah. I was trying to think who... I thought maybe she was the sister of the woman who is in uh, The Great Gatsby. I forget what she's... Because she's got a similar kind of pixie-ish look to her. Anyway, the cool thing is, is it's directed by this guy named uh, Thomas McCarthy which I would have sworn in a stack of Bibles I'd never heard from before, but then I started researching him, and he's been in tons of stuff. Yeah, but he's uh, an actor. Like, this is his first time writing or directing Sure, anything. he wrote and directed this film, but he's also directed... Uh, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's also a prolific writer. Like, for example, he was one of the credited story writers for the Pixar movie Up. Hmm, okay. He was also wrote the screenplay for Million Dollar Arm, which was... The John Ham. John Ham. Yeah, yeah, he actually produced that as well, uh, along with Bill Simmons. He's done a lot of things, but as far as uh, he had a wire connection I wasn't aware of, he played Scott Templeton in the final season of The Wire. Now, you'll recall hmm. him. He's the, uh, I think they call him Fabulists, the the journalist who was making shit up, essentially. Okay. Um, so he, you, you'll recognize his face from that. Um, and he's had a couple other roles and in, in things. So... Uh, I was really kind of stoked to see that he had a wire connection, and mm-hmm. I just thought this was—it's a hard movie to describe because if it, it's yeah. eventually, it, it's essentially about a dwarf who's really, really into trains and doesn't really want to be bothered. There, there's not much plot in this movie. No, it's it's more about the characters, and it makes you feel how isolating that is to be different. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, And not just to be different. I mean, yes, that's the experience through his lens. But then there's also uh, Olivia and Joe who are isolated for different reasons. Like uh, Joe is kind of uh, isolated by circumstance in a way. Mm. Like his father's sick. He's got to go to this small town. He's he's from New New York. um, So he's he's not used to this kind of isolation here. Sure. Uh, And then Olivia has had a a uh, son or a daughter, a daughter who died. It was one of her children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of, you know, it, it 
caused her to isolate herself. Oh, that's the other other this this movie's quietly loaded with star power. Uh, John Slattery, yeah, Roger yeah. plays Ro- her husband. Yeah, yeah, Roger from Mad Men himself plays uh, has a bit part of it as her husband. Mm-hmm. Again, this movie came out like thirteen years ago. Dude's hair is as silver as it is today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. John Slattery, I feel like came out of the womb with a full head, a shock white hair. Mm-hmm. Never changed. I don't know if so. If I were to like try to sum up the plot, I guess I would say like a lonely man tries to isolate himself but is unable to. Yeah, uh, he's too damn interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting for kind of the wrong reasons. He does not like the attention that he gets. Uh, he would he would prefer anything else, but he gets it regardless. I also like the fact that this this film is very centered in one particular place. It's Newfoundland. New Jersey, which I thought I didn't know existed, but it's a real town. Uh-huh. You can actually visit the station that's that's part of the station agent name. And a lot of the people starring this are from New Jersey, too. Thomas McCarthy is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jip Rossetti. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby Cannavale. Uh, Bobby C. Peter Dinklage, also from uh, Hoboken. So, really? In New Jersey. So these oh, guys... Oh, that's where he starts out in this film. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that there was a lot of, you know, this this this... this wasn't an accidental like this this place meant something to these people yeah yeah that's that's interesting i didn't know that and obviously you know this has got to be something interesting for peter dinklage to work on because he's essentially playing a character and you see it like you know it it all it takes imagine like if only one out of a hundred people are are are, lack the manners and upbringing to refrain from staring at a dwarf okay you're going to get that experience three to five times every goddamn day if you live in a big town. Mm-hmm. And just walking down the street is is something that invites people to point fingers and laugh and make jokes. And yeah. he kind of wears this detached feeling like armor. Yeah. Um, and it's caused him to just purposefully isolate himself. It's part of what I like about the very beginning of this movie is you see that. You see that. Uh, even despite his best efforts. I mean, he lives literally next door to the place where he works. Mm-hmm. He has an office in the back in which he stays while everyone else is watching movies about trains and doing these things. Uh, he hangs out up on the rooftop of this building where no one can see him. He has purposefully isolated himself as much as possible. And even in that first scene where he walks to work, uh, a kid and his father walk by and stare. Right. Like, even in that five feet that he has to walk from his house to his job, he can't avoid it. Right. But there's a lot of things they do to play with that concept. Like, he is, for example, he inherits a station, this this rundown train station that he then moves into. Has no power, has no water. Yeah. And for some unexplicable reason, (laughs) Bobby Cannavale sets up his coffee truck that he's running Mm -hmm. for his dad in this guy's driveway, which is looks like at the end of a dead-end dirt road. Like, uh-huh. you can see a half mile <laughs> in the foreground, a fairly well-trafficked highway. Yeah. And he's, like, you know, clearly kind of just, I think, fucking around. But this guy is relentlessly outgoing. Yes. Like, he is, to the extent that, that uh, um, what's this guy's name? It's Sin. No, Finn. This Finn. guy's name's Finn. Yeah, Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage's character's name Finn. To the extent that Finn is like antisocial and a loner, this guy is social and he has to be around people to feel comfortable. And he just yeah. he just kind of wears Finn down. 
and and pries open his his shell and forces himself inside in a way that yeah. never feels like exploitative. No, he he feels like a genuine person. You know, I mean, he is a character. Like mm-hmm. most people would label him as a character, but he's he's genuinely so. Sure, he's he's not asking questions because he's uh curious about oh look at this look at this freak i want to find out more about about this he's like uh this person is the only person around to talk to and i like talking to people so let's talk to him right you know that is so when you know a lot of people that listen to our podcast know that like i had a huge personal change seven eight years ago where i yeah um you know got a divorce and i left my old religion and i kind Leaving of behind all family and friends at the time and and i i one of the things i did to keep from becoming essentially peter dinklage in this movie is um i reinvented myself and like you know read a lot of books and stuff about being more outgoing and like i like practiced approaching people and talking to them Hmm. and it's like a goddamn superpower man Uh, if you get over the initial awkwardness and the weirdness of it like just being able to go up and talk to anybody man woman or child Mm -hmm. it changes what it's like to ride an airplane it changes what it's like to go to the grocery store yeah you're like more happy and open it is amazing and there's like man you're bringing up so many good points and questions that i have about this movie right off the bat here <laughs> okay what what's interesting is because if i want to be honest mm-hmm. i mostly cultivated that so i could talk to women oh okay yeah. okay I, I mean you know all right that's a that's a reason right and and <laughs> and like i was very successful for a year and a half two years there and then i started settling down into a relationship and slowly that and i moved to a new city where i don't know anybody but you and my girlfriend and my son. Yeah. And I've slowly turned back into where I was before, where I'm fairly, you know, I'm not reclusive, but I don't like going out. Your hobbies are such that you'd rather stay at home. I now, my not, <laughs> my eyes now are fixed six feet in front of the ground when I'm walking and doing stuff. I'm not looking up. I'm not smiling at people. Yeah. I haven't talked to a stranger in that I didn't have to talk to in forever. It's like completely withered away from me. And I'm kind of sure. watching this movie's made me realize I kind of miss being more gregarious and outgoing. That's the thing. I mean, I I feel like, I, I don't know if I want to get into the end of this movie quite yet. I st- there's still a lot of things to talk about. So I'll save it. But I feel like there are changes that happen in the characters, both positive and, in my opinion, negative, yeah. uh, that we will talk about toward the end. Before that, um, I, I just want to say that this movie is, I don't know, would you consider this movie life-affirming? Is that is that something you would label this movie as? No, specifically I would, for the Peter Dinklage character of hmm. Finn. I guess I kind of think that it was. I kept on waiting for it to do something like that. I don't know if it's okay, life. Okay, that's I a think good it's, point. It's life neutral. It's just life. Okay, I, like I don't that. know that anyone learned anything. I don't know that except for that it's good to have people that care about you, and they don't have to be a bunch of people, but. Uh-huh. That that is something that is essential for some kind of healing, or that everyone needs somebody. Like it's arguable that that uh, Finn had found the elderly black gentleman that owned the train store. Yeah, and that was like a match made in heaven. I almost wonder if he, like, I've got, I've, I've been thinking about this, and I got this elaborate head cannon that Finn was this awkward teenager. And he was a dwarf, and he was, you know, everyone made fun of him, and he just didn't approach a person. And he walked into his train store one day as a middle teen, like 14, 15 years old, and this kindly old man 
shared his love of trains and he was kind of taciturn and quiet, but he treated him like as a person. Yeah. Wasn't like a dwarf. It's just a dude that walk a potential customer. And he kind like of does. fell in love with trains because of that. Okay. And then when this guy died and he left in this train station, now he has that part of his life kind of detached and he needs it. Yeah. He doesn't want, he, he doesn't know he needs it. But throughout the movie, he kind of searches and he, he puts that back together with Bobby Cannavale uh, and uh, uh, Olivia. Uh, and and it's like there's a lot of like funny laughs, like belly laughs in this movie, too. There are. Yeah. Specifically when Olivia is driving down the road and she nearly hits Peter Dinklage with the car. Twice. Because she's well, yeah, because she's fumbling with her keys or something stupid she's a flibberty gibbet uh and then the second time you you see her headed for this exact same road this exact same curve and people and you think, think no. you think they won't do that they're not gonna have her mess up again yeah. and then yeah she drops her coffee and she almost kills him a second time yeah oh that was hilarious i think a lot of stuff with joe is hilarious just sure. the way he's so outgoing and he's so desiring of attention and wants something exciting in his life and joe reminded none me of a, that is here joe reminded me a lot of my friend tricky nicky all right. Yeah. Like, and we had that. a very similar relationship to Finn and Joe in this movie. Um, and so, like, I, I saw a lot of myself and a lot of, like, different f- phases of my life in here. Oh, yeah. The other interesting thing I thought is, like, Olivia at one point in this movie gets knocked on her ass and she retreats in herself and she refuses to allow anyone to help her. Yeah. Um, and Finn, like, is now the outgoing person trying to break into her shell, and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, until, like, you know, I, I don't want to spoil everything and make it... Although, it's like, I feel like I'd tell everybody everything that happens in the movie, and it wouldn't change the experience. Sure. This is not a plot-based film. It's not. Like, <laughs> I thought... So, when I heard that this is the station agent, and it's Peter Dinklage... <laughs> All right. And Andrew Mout is like, this is a film about human isolation. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, so this is going to be Peter Dinklage as some kind of nerdy scientist. It's at the mm. Ross Ice Shelf Station in Antarctica, and that's what I thought. Sure. This is, I, in fact, I informally called it Ice Ice Station Zebra. It's like, is it time to watch Ice Station Zebra yet? Um, Just praying that it doesn't turn into the thing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But it's not. No, here's it what I founded my expectations, and throughout the whole movie, like in the final twenty minutes, yeah. I'm like, oh, I know it's going to happen now. Nope. That's that's the genius part about it, and that's the thing. So I, I read Roger Ebert's review of this because that's what I want to do when I'm reviewing a movie. He's great at it. Uh, I didn't find his review particularly insightful on this one because I think it's mostly spelled out on the page here. Yeah. Um, but the one thing he does say, which I'm going to quote, that is really just dead on is this. He says, it's a great relief that the station agent is not one of those movies in which the problem is that the characters have not slept with each other. Yes. And the solution is that they do. Yes. I could not tell you how surprised and how grateful I was that it was not that movie. Yeah. At the end. I mean, he doesn't sleep with the librarian. He doesn't sleep with Olivia. Nobody. He kind of sleeps with the librarian. No, well, she sleeps, sleeps on the couch. Well, okay. He sleeps on the same surface as the librarian. I don't believe that they had sex. Hmm. I don't believe that that she is the type of person that he would he would attach himself to. I, She's more be. interested in him from the freak show angle, I think. Huh. N- not not kind of in the same malicious way that most people are, but in the way that's like like sampling a flavor. Th- like this is a curiosity to me. That is a much more negative take on her character than I would assume. And I I assume that they did have sex. 
Oh, okay. But I was surprised hmm. that him and uh, Olivia, I thought that they were really going down toward that. And, I did but too, I, and but I, at the end, they bring it around like, where they're friends. I, I thought that that was going to be gross because she clearly, part of the attraction there was that he is kind of childlike in several important ways. I mean, physically, he's got the stature of a child. Sure, and being drawn to... <laughs> The, yeah. the child as as her child is yeah like is, she was like coming at like literally like you know a mother that's a weird relationship that that's that a super Finn would like to fuck yeah no it, it was and i'm like oh man this could go yeah this could go ass over tea kettle really really easy but mm-hmm. it didn't yeah and i think that's one of the brilliant aspects of this movie and like i said it's 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 surprising not in like an M. Night Shyamalan type of what a twist way. It's surprising in that it just defies your expectations or it, yeah. it invites you to have expectations. Like I thought there was going to be like this one plot of him researching these trains that he's inherited and this thing. Uh-huh. I thought that was going to pay off as something like, oh, this is going to be worth a, a million dollars or whatever. Or somebody's going to get sick and die. <laughs> or, and I feel like the coincidence with her almost hitting him twice sets yeah. you up for that. Yeah. And then it just never delivers the second punch. Very quirky, but not in like, you know, a a lame or eye-rolling way. It's just, I don't know. I mean, they're very strongly realized characters that I feel like I've met before. They are. And I I feel like they all have, you know, legitimate, there there isn't any strained reasoning as to why these people would be isolating themselves. No. Uh, I mean... You've got to imagine, like, losing a child is one of the most scarring things that can happen sure. to to anyone. I mean, it takes something that should be joyous and sure. beautiful and wonderful and turns into something dark and horrible every time you see it. Like, yeah. And she you, breaks down just looking at a, a kid playing. Sure. And you, and you look at the divorce rates, that is, like, a big—that's one of the kiss of deaths. Like, if you have a child die, it's not uncommon for the relationship not to survive just because— Sure. Yeah. You know, it's people a constant reminder of all yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I think the people that do stay together and are a- able to comfort each other—that's that's that's obviously the way it should work. But mm-hmm. it's far from the the common experience. And I think that the film, yeah. like I said, it does a lot with like not telling you explicitly what's all going on. It's just you know relies on like I don't know what you would th- make of this movie if you were thirteen. Like I feel like you would want to just gouge your eyes out because nothing is happening and yeah. you don't have any context to put any of this stuff in. Maybe <laughs> if you were put upon, like if you if if you were a dwarf or you had some kind of physical deformity, you would identify with that character, sure, yeah. and you'd feel the un- discomfort that he felt like when Joe is just trying to push himself into his life, and you'd feel kind of like you 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 deal with it. But that if you're just like an average person with no life experience. I don't know what you'd make of this movie because so much of it a lot makes kind of you fill in the it makes you fill in the blank spots with pieces of yourself. Absolutely. Because I there's not a, a great, lot of there's no monologues it. about why they are the way they are. They no, don't the, explain the big, it. The big scene that you get is Peter Dinklage at a bar uh, drinking heavily and then standing up on a stool saying, here I am. Look at me. Yeah. I'm a freak. Yeah. Take Take a good long look, assholes. Right. Right. Uh, and I thought that was effective for how quiet the film was. Yeah. And a really restrained performance from Peter Dinklage, too. I mean... Yeah. It's just very... Like, he just... Which I think is the same way of saying it's a brilliant performance, mm-hmm. but he just pulls back, like, even when he gets... You know, there's one point where the librarian's boyfriend kind of roughs him up, and he just kind of, like... When he hits the car, he, like, makes his face like, ugh. Like, it's not... 
He's not mad. He's he's just kind of like ah, oh, this thing. I, I I try to think of the exact emotion. I don't know. I felt like there was there was anger in it because sure. of his stature. He wants to do more, but he can't. Right. He wants to stand in the way, but he knows what'll happen if he does. Right. I just will get shoved. It's like this is the best case scenario. I got shoved into the car, and now I walk away. And now I well, yeah. There there is no. You know, this isn't Elf where he's going to go beat up Will Ferrell. This is... No, it's real life. He's and four foot three. There's nothing he can do against a man like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's profoundly frustrating to him. Right. And, and I think there is anger in it, um, but more anger at the universe. Like, it's a cosmic sort of anger. Sure. Uh, but it's also interesting, too. Like, there's a couple things that I think mean a lot, and I'm not really sure why. And maybe it's just something that you're thinking about. But I thought that was something interesting about... This guy clearly had a dream of being a train chaser. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Olivia's like, well, why, you know, why don't you do it? And he's like, well, I don't have a, I don't have a camera and I don't have a car. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that is a kind of a profound statement of how unwilling some people are to follow their dreams. Hmm. Like, okay. at no time you could scrape yeah. together enough. You couldn't borrow a camera or borrow a friend's car or rent a car or like... If that is your life's ambition, that is something imminently within his reach, but he chose not to because uh, you know, why rock the boat? I thought that was really yeah. kind of an interesting statement. And the other one that still I've been thinking about in my spare time and in the shower <laughs> and before I go off to bed at night is when they're all <laughs> – Joe's brought over a bag of weed and bottles of wine and they're in, they're in Olivia's house and they're drinking and they, it's just after they've gone on one of his long train watching walks where he just walks to rails yep. and he looks at trains and he looks at serial numbers of stuff and they're talking about and, – and, and they're also watching – he ends up becoming a train chaser and doing this movie with Joe, which is ridiculous. Which I love Joe's reaction sure. there because it's – this is not Twister. No. They're, they're in no danger. They're literally just driving next to a train and Joe is freaking the fuck out. That was the beautiful it. thing about my friend Nick. Like he was always in the moment. Like whatever yeah. he was doing, he was yeah. doing 110% at all times, which I thought was a kind of – really liberating way to live your life so they're all sitting there and like finn's just sitting around and he's contented and everyone like is taking turns saying trains are cool essentially they're validating him yeah and he says horses are cool too uh-huh and then everybody kind of laughs and i'm like okay that's interesting <laughs> that like everyone is on his same page and like he's kind of like wanting to turn the page and then at the end where because there's this other relationship he has with i think her name's cleo yeah, this yeah, little black, girl. this uh-huh. little black girl who kind of again doesn't treat him differently, and you know, um, is kind of shy and withdrawn, and they kind of he, they kind of draw each other out. She invites him to talk about trains at her school because he's very passionate about it. He goes. There's one little shit that is starting to kind of make fun of him, and he just wants to talk about how short he is and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. a teacher dismisses him. But the end, he like you know, people are like, "Shut up, trains are cool," and this kid says, "Blimps are cool," <laughs> and I'm and then like like he's not wrong, no, and and <laughs> um, Finn gets this kind of this wry smile on his face, like uh. he saw something in this kid that connected back to the previous scene with the horses, and I don't, I, I there is something there there, but I have I've been trying for the last three days since we watched it, figure it out, and I can't, I can't. I don't. It's it's an yeah, echo I, and a callback to I don't know what. I, I'm mostly with you. I'm not sure I totally understand it. If I had to guess, I might say that this is him 
seeing the world in a new perspective. You know, like his focus has been trains because that is what has kept him, uh, you know, as happy as as happy as he's going to be mm-hmm. in in his isolation. He he found a bond, like you said, with Ben. I think was the the guy's name mm-hmm. um, at the train shop. Maybe he's realizing that there is a bigger world um, that is not so scary. You know, trains are awesome, but there's some other awesome stuff out there. Mm. I think there was something of an understanding. Like, Finn likes looking at trains because he finds them interesting and they're kind of you, you distinctive and unique. Mm-hmm. And he says, I've never ridden Amtrak. And I think part of that reason is because Amtrak is just pedestrian. It's normal. It's average. It's boring. Yeah. And at this kid being intensely interested in his height and like this kind of like it was kind of mean, but also I think just innocent. Like I've never seen a dwarf before. I'm going to pelter you questions about it. He's kind of like, I get it. I am the vintage steamy rolling down the tracks and everyone else's Amtraks. Of course, people want to stare at me. Like there was a little hmm. bit of like understanding like coming to terms with yeah like with- it's like it still sucks and I'm not saying this is an excuse but like you know I just remember I was sitting there in a uh Boston uh, a what is that a Boston market with my three year old son oh this is how all good stories start yeah and we're sitting there <laughs> we're splitting the half a chicken dinner and this man who's got just severely third degree burns oh yeah yeah he told me about doesn't this. have a nose doesn't have ears like walks in and my son gapes and i'm seeing this happen in slow motion stands up on his chair points and in a loud voice says <laughs> that man oh, what's no. wrong with that man he's covered it. and i'm like shush you know oh, no. but like what do you do like it's, yeah i mean he doesn't know any better right well and that's like it i would i'd be polite and discreet but like i would want to stare at that guy because that's kind of what you do when you see something visually different and interesting and it's a curse but it's also an understandable one. Like, I did... Yeah. Um, I'm not excusing I mean, I get people for being jackasses. I'm just saying that I wonder if there was a little bit of him coming to grips with, I get it now, or I kind of understand. So he's like the or, train. Yeah. He's, he's like the train or the blimp or the yeah the horse. Now, there are some people that are just mean and they're dicks, but there's yeah, also... Yeah, there's a definitely a distinction to be made between the people who point and... Shout insults yeah, like the and, and son fun versus people who stare for yeah. curiosity's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it is definitely something that is out of the normal for them to see? Sure. So you can you can understand that maybe they they take a second look, but right. yeah, I I think there's a distinction there certainly. So what was your big thing? My big thing. Yeah. Are we going to talk about the end of this film? Because I, I I think we yeah I've got I'm I'm it, out. It raises a lot of questions for me. Like uh-huh. the reason I brought up the life affirming thing is I feel like the end of this film is rather life-affirming um, for for most of the characters here. I think Peter Dinklage and Olivia, or Finn, Olivia, and Joe have all come to better understandings of themselves and each other and are stronger for having each other by their sides. Mm. What I wasn't necessarily thrilled with is the change in Joe's demeanor. Like, he was so profoundly different at the end of that movie than he was at the beginning. It, A, didn't really feel right that you would have, a, what, a couple months with these people, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you would be that changed. Um, B, I felt like he lost a little bit of himself. You, We talk about, you know, the how we kind of in some ways admire the, you know, just gung-ho, I'm going to live life sort of attitude. Sure. And I feel like that's 
that's what Joe embodied at the beginning. But by the end, he's basically the same as these other two characters. It feels almost like they've beaten something out of him by telling him, be quiet. We don't want to hear you talking. We just want to sit here and read. We just want to enjoy this moment without, like, in silence. I didn't feel like that's who Joe was at the beginning. I didn't really like that that's who he became at the end. So I have, I have a viewpoint on this. I think there's. I think we missed, we might have missed something at the end there. Like, his father might have died. He went or, away, definitely. So I think his father was dead, yeah. And, and And also, there was something significant about Finn finally going to meet him at the bar. And then he stood him up, and I wasn't sure if that reason was legit or... Well, that... Yeah, his father... What does he turn, say there? He says something like, didn't see my dad like had a spill for the worst, and then by the time I called yeah. you, you don't know whether that's... Because the other thing about guys like Joe is like they are the type that make commitments and then completely forget. They and can then, be flaky, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they get because they are in the moment. Whatever they're doing is the most important thing in their life. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that kind of changed him like either some combination of his father dying or you know being forced to take something seriously or the fact that you know olivia tried to commit you know suicide i there was something to that to where i felt like everyone was on like these different poles of withdrawing and like he was almost overcompensating with how outgoing and stuff he was and now like everyone's kind of come to this happy equilibrium where they can share a moment of silence without him feeling he has to jabber or you know finn doesn't need to be looking at a train and olivia doesn't need to be painting or upset about her husband or her 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 child that she lost i don't know but i feel like there is something i was missed uh, with Joe and I want I'm I'm really looking forward to watching this movie again. I want to watch it with my girlfriend, see what she thinks about it. But I'm gonna be paying more attention to him. Yeah. Because of the three, I was much less interested in him. I was more interested in what's going on with Olivia and Finn. So I okay. feel like I might have missed something. Um because you're right. He did fundamentally change and kind of off camera. And the only impetus yeah. was perhaps his father taking a turn for the worse and Finn kind of rejecting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a successful way, because Finn had tried to reject him for half the movie, and he just refused to be to to allow himself to be rejected. Yeah, Ebert had an interesting take on that too. That Joe Joe is lonely in a different way. Joe Joe is lonely in that he craves so much attention. Yes, that he can't possibly get it. Yes, get enough of it. Yes, and so that that you know that's why he seeks out people and wants to talk all the time. And right, like I think he's searching for more attention than anyone could give him. There's balance in you know like there's balance in selflessness and selfishness. There's balance in gregariousness and solitude. Certainly, yeah. And you know if Finn was on the other side of the pendulum swing, <laughs> then Joe was on the complete opposite side. So oh, yeah. I think he can still be kind of his fundamental Joe-ness and be able to turn that off, but not and, and be stuck is, in that on position. He is kind of still fundamental Joe because, you know, at the very end where they're sitting on the porch talking, right. he's like, oh, yeah, she's got that sexy librarian thing going on, books right. flying. He's he's still yeah. talking like Joe, but Hair comes down, glasses it's so come much off. more reserved. It is. He's there with like a glass of wine or something. But he which, seems a little bit more comfortable. They all seem much more comfortable. Yeah. yeah. I just... I feel like that is growth, like that is intrinsic growth for right. these other two characters, but maybe not necessarily for him. Like I, I kind of fell in love with Joe the way he was at the beginning of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not like I was looking for him to change because he was a sad sack of shit like the rest of them. I was like, man, that looks like a fun guy to be around. He's, sure, he's not. Uh, he doesn't have any malice whatsoever. No, he he's doesn't. Very engaging, and I, 
I don't know. By the end of it, I felt like hmm, it's a little sad that that has been scrubbed out of him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. The other thing that I wanted to talk about about the end of this film is, you know, the con- the content that they all feel at the end, and they're content to be lonely together. Like they they found people who are just as lonely as them. Uh, Which might be the same as saying they're no longer lonely. <laughs> I know that that's an interesting question. It, it makes me wonder about you know the value of a quiet life and and the nobility of a quiet life. And sometimes that's portrayed positively in film. Sometimes it's portrayed negatively. I feel like in modern society we view that as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what you just want to go live in the woods on or on a farm or something and not participate in snapchat and yeah, twitter sure. and like what the fuck are you doing right. you're not even connecting with people right but at the same time that internet the the whole idea of the internet is a little bit of a barrier to communication and socialization Indeed. we too. feel more connected but you know i think a lot of studies it's have almost shown an illusion of connection it the whatever happy endorphin feelings you get from being with people you do not get by socializing over the internet yeah and i mean that's that's not actually what i'm trying to get at here what i'm trying to get at is is there value in the life that they are apparently going to lead? Is is there a point to it? Is a life where you sit down watching trains uh, something that is inherently valuable? I don't know. Can it be? I, I'm not, I don't want you to like necessarily judge and say, no, uh, the people who lead those lives are <laughs> stupid and they have no value. I'm just wondering like, what what the nobility in that is. I think there's nobility in being content. Whatever okay. that is, and that's one thing I struggle Whatever with because I tend to be a dabbler. Me too. Like I yeah. like to do a lot of different things, and I get to a certain level of proficiency, and then I get bored with it, and I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, the idea, and I've always romanticized the notion of like really intimately becoming an expert or a master at on a particular thing. thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but. You know, I think that's I romanticize that in the same way a girl with straight hair always pines after the girl with the curly hair, and the girl with the curly hair always wishes yeah. she could have it. It's, it's like different. It's the path not taken. Like that, you feel stuck with what you have. I know all the aw- I know all the awesome things about the way I am, and all the drawbacks of the way I am, and all I see is the awesome, noble things about the other way, and I don't see all the drawbacks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, I I, so I, it, I get that. Okay. All right, the, the other question I guess I would have is, doesn't the end of this film suggest that they would be more content and more fulfilled if they were more social? Why do you think that? Because at the end of this film, that's what they've become. Yes, it's a very small group of people, and they are uh, within within themselves very lonely but yet they are together and happier at the end of this for having found each other than they were at the more beginning authentic, having more not. More comfortably happy. Okay, but to – so because that's the other thing because like I know people that have like hundreds of friends. Yeah. And I always find that like exhausting just thinking about it because I have – I have I, – I tend to have like five friends. Okay. And And – Sometimes, like, two of them will kind of wane in my life and two new ones will pop pop forward. But I have a hard time being friends with more than, like, four to five people. And when I say friends, I mean, like, I'm intimately connected with what's going on in their life and and knowing them and can count on them. And they feel the same about for me. Yeah. 
like everybody else to me is just an acquaintance or they're a coworker or they're someone you have a good time with, but you know, they're not like friends in the type of sense that I'm talking about. And I don't know which, I don't think you can make a judgment about which is better or worse. Is it better to have a bunch of superficial friends um, that kind of sort of know you, or is it better to have a few very, very solid friends and I feel like this movie argues that maybe it's better to have a very few solid friends that you've been vulnerable with and they know why you're fucked up and you understand why they're fucked okay. up and you can just exist comfortably. Sure, I can buy that. At the very least, it's better to have some friends than no friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. And even that, like, in the setup of the movie, you know, like, uh, Finn had somebody mm-hmm. that looked... and and. They do a lot of really economic things, like just a few scenes of like the old man being protective of people gawking at him, you know, at his train store. Like you can tell that this guy's been looking out for him. Yeah. And they, they've been able to share this kind of quiet solitude and this love of trains together for God knows how many years. So, yeah, I think that he's essentially at the end of the movie found what he had in the beginning and maybe even a superior okay. version of it. I think so. Certainly. Uh, Instead of finding someone more. just like it's like, I don't like hanging out with people that are just like me because I don't get any. I'm selfish and I don't get anything out of the situation. Like I yeah. much rather find out that I'm wrong about something than to continually be affirmed that I'm right about something. <laughs> so I feel like his relationship with this this the the guy at the beginning was essentially a relationship with a person that's it's it's just like himself. Sure. Um. Ooh, then towards the end of the movie, these are three very different people that have come to accept each other. And I feel like that that's somehow superior. There's more energy and there's more stimulation and more just good vibes when you have a relationship like that than when you do have a relationship with someone that's essentially a clone of yourself. Okay. I buy that, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I think they did that was really cool here is just setting it, uh, j- just the setting, the trains, um, the idea that, you know, his, his world is trains and I, you know, the, the scarcity of people who are really into trains and what a weird thing that's considered in society Mm -hmm. parallels to, uh, you know, his dwarfism and the way he feels about himself. Like he is drawn to these groups because that's kind of how those people feel as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very similar to the end of this movie where he ends up with a couple of other lonely people who understand him and feel the same way. Sure. Not no. to say anything bad about people who are into trains. I'm just saying no, but it's, it's, it's a niche. It's a very small and kind of ostracized niche. Loners and antisocial people have always kind of gravitated towards esoteric interests. And I think it's because, yeah. like, you know, 20 years ago, it was Star Trek. Um, or D&D or 30 D- years D- ago. D- yeah, like, there's always this niche. And there's good things and bad things because it's almost always kind of like a relatively judgment-free zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one's expecting you to be like uh, a go-getter or outgoing or gregarious. You, you know, people expect and there's like this shared sense of humor that, you know, I don't know, because the older I get, the more kind of shallow that kind of stuff feels like I remember sometimes like being a teenager and playing a board game and reciting Monty Python and it was very comfortable, but like, it's the same shit over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it is. And like, I feel like sometimes people, they do get into their little corners a little bit too much and you can do that politically. You can do that religiously. You can do that socially. 
You can do that with a sports team. You can do that with whatever. And they never get outside of that comfort zone and they're never challenged. And it doesn't seem like a very happy, fulfilling way to live. Sure. And in this movie, I mean, everyone's Finn, outside Finn the is certainly zone. challenged. He's way out of his comfort zone here. Sure. He's forced out of it. Sure. Uh, like, you know, Jip Rossetti is forced to be confront things that are serious. And yeah. Olivia has to confront her past and move and, and the fact that life is moving on. And her, you know, I think she's this artist thing has been kind of a denial mm. of of moving on. And now she's forced to do that. And Finn, you know, has confronted the fact that there's more to life and train. So I felt like all everyone had a nice little arc. And in a 90 minute movie, what more do you want? That's the thing. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't feel like this film lingered at all. Mm-mm. Like like it like it wasted a moment. Nope. It, Even though it's so slow. It is extremely slow. But it like it sets up the situation and the character and the primary story engine within five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> yep. And then the rest of it is just hanging out with those characters. And then as soon as the kind of catharsis of the movie happens, within a minute you're rolling credits. Like it is an extremely efficient movie, but it does have like a one mile an hour pace. Yeah, and then it delivers. It's at the it's, end. Wa- it's walking the train tracks, man. <laughs> Definitely is. I think everyone should see this movie because again, it's yeah. ninety minutes. It's got some bald move star power with Tyrion and Jip Rossetti and Roger Sterling. Uh, mm-hmm. It's. It's on Netflix, so 90% yeah. of people out there are going to have access, access to it uh, for free. So, or, you know, quote unquote free. I, I think it's great. And I'm, I, once again, I'm super glad that we got a guy like Andrew Mount that's uh, willing to pay us to watch this because I otherwise wouldn't yeah. got it. And hopefully, uh, you know, a couple hundred of you guys will be moved to watch it too because I think it's, it, it works on a lot of different levels. It does. Uh, and it's also one of Peter Dinklage's. I remember thinking him being extremely young. And I was amazed that this movie is, I believe, uh, was made the same year that the movie Elf was. Oh, uh, wow. What were you going to say? Okay. Uh, I was going to say that I really appreciate his work in his uncredited work in No Holds Barred. But, uh, <laughs> Hulk Hogan. Yeah. If you want to go back to even before his IMDb How credits was he? start. I don't know. Uh, but that thing was made in 1989. So He's like 44 now. And yeah, I can't do the math on that. But yeah, Elf came out in 2003, and I swear to God, he looks 10 years older in that movie than he does in this movie, and they're complete contemporaries of each other. Wow. So, uh, no, it's... Will Ferrell will put the years on you. Well, there you go. I gotta say, working with him. Working with that the asshole. Worst, worst decision I ever made. Having to do your own stunts. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's a great film. I think everybody should see it, and yeah. there's everybody probably can see it. Yeah, so thank you so much, Andrew, for commissioning that. If someone wants to commission a podcast on a movie or a TV show that they like, how can they do that? Go to club.baldmove.com and uh, click somewhere on there, and it'll take you to the cart where you can add a membership. But the other thing, you can add the commission podcast to your shopping cart, too. So yeah. that's how you do it. Okay. That's very nonspecific, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with another commission podcast, I think, next Monday. Uh, if all goes according to plan. Sure. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See ya.